Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice. We have so many infirmities, so many ailments, so many flaws, so many failures. Lord, we've been wounded here. In this past week, we've done something that sears our soul, puts guilt upon us. Lord, do you remember the prayers that were mentioned earlier, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, Lord. You're faithful and just because of the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for this time to worship you. Thank thank you for this time to praise your name and to lift you up. Would you help... Would you help us to rightly divide your word? Would you send your spirit to bring life and immortality to light through your gospel here today, Lord? Would you move in your people's souls? Would you look after your sheep? Would you feed them? Would you give them springs of living water to drink upon and to quench all their thirst? Lord, would you help us all here today by your grace and your mercy? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Hebrews chapter 4. So in chapters 3 and 4, for those who are in the Bible study, they're already aware of what's there. But for those who were unable to make that, chapters 3 and 4 hold exhortations, but in a very sobering set of statements. There's there's a fear that can set upon all of us as we read verses that tell us God is faithful to fulfill judgment. And that there are those, even among those professing, that do not hold fast to their profession of faith and ultimately prove themselves to not be of us and who continue on in this walk only for a time and then fall away and show that they never truly knew the grace of God. And at the end of all of that, we're told in verse 16 of chapter 4 to come. Let us therefore... Come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is what I want to focus on this morning. This verse, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Grace to help in time of need. Don't we all need that? Grace, mercy. That's our truest need. At the core level of who we are, what we need is grace. Unmerited favor put upon us. This verse gives a command. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Questions I want to ask this morning. Who needs mercy and grace? Who needs mercy and grace? Second question. Why can we come to the throne of grace? Why? Third question. What does it mean to come boldly? What does it mean to come boldly? This entire verse hinges or or rather orbits around the idea of coming boldly. Let us, therefore, is a reasoning as to why we can come boldly. And we come boldly for the purpose of receiving that which is at the throne of grace. So all of our thoughts are going to surround what does it mean to come boldly? Who comes boldly? Why can we come boldly? What does it really mean to come boldly to the throne of grace? But I go back to that first question. 
Who needs grace? Who needs grace and mercy? Do you, I'll ask it this way. Do you see yourself this morning as needing grace and mercy? Do you view yourself in that position of needing liberating grace that sets you free from the bondage of sin? When we look back into chapter 4 in verse 12, we see some scrutiny that if you find yourself saying, well, I'm not that bad, or I don't need that much grace, or I'll take some of that, it sounds good, but I don't really need it. Look at verse 12. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm not even sure what my original intent was or what my base motive is. My heart, as deceitfully wicked as it is, confuses me at times. As to what my motive really was, I begin to question and wonder, well, what, did I do that out of love? Was I, was I trying to honor God with that? Or, or was I looking to promote myself and lift myself up above him? But the word of God, it, it cuts right to the depth of our thoughts and intents and draws them out to be seen. Neither is there any creature that covers all of us, right? There's no creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We will stand before that judgment seat. Every thought, every intent. This isn't meant to scare. This is intended to cause us to ponder and to consider these things. If everything you've said, every idle word, everything you've done every action and its motives and its intents and its secondary objectives and, and the things you would gain and the kickbacks and the, and the pride and the ego that stem from it, if every anything and everything was open, if it were open before someone, would you find yourself in need of grace? This morning... Based on the word of God, I declare it is absolutely open. Every single reason, every single thought, it's all before God. Now, I may not know it, and you may not know mine, but God knows it all. And you see, that's the reality. You don't have to stand before me on the judgment day. You're going to stand before God. You're going to stand before the Lord and answer for all of it, the good and the bad. All things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So, who is it that needs mercy? Who is it that needs grace? Who's bound by the law, religious exercise, religious activity, even a flurry of good biblical service and efforts to promote the church? Forgetting that we are to promote Christ first and then the church. Who's bound by the guilt of sin still and the condemning weight of our errors? Who's dry, empty, in need of revival, as was prayed earlier, in need of great refreshing the word as you open it? Who is in need of grace opening this word and it's just not alive to them? Who's in need of grace and mercy? Who's hurt? Who has pain? Who's struggling? Who has trials and temptations manifold laid upon them in this life providentially by the hand of God put there, put there to drive us to mercy and grace? Have you ever realized that? Have you ever asked the Lord in your prayers? Lord, give me grace. Give me mercy. Build my character. Shape me. Conform me to your image. Have you asked the Lord to do that? And then you wake up the next morning and all you seem to face is trial and, and temptation and, and, and people speaking to you in ways like, well, why would he talk to me like that? And, and things happening that frustrating and traffic and people are late and who knows what, right? A, a plethora of things just rammed at you and you're just barely getting out of bed. You ask the Lord for that. 
You ask the Lord, give me grace. And so he gives you trials in order to cause you to bend your knee and say, Lord, help me through this difficulty. And what a grace that is to bend the knee and not depend on your own strength. You ask for grace, Lord, help me. Lord, show me your ways. Teach me your truth in a deeper way. And he gives you circumstances and situations where you say, oh, I remember reading that over in Philippians. Or, oh yeah, I remember the preacher talking about that. I'm going to try and respond in love here. Lord, give me grace and help me. And your character is being shaped by the trials and the difficulties. Or you get into a situation where you're frustrated. I don't even know why I'm frustrated at this. Wow, how wicked am I? The depths of depravity know no end. And the closer I get to God, the more I see just how sinful I am and how much need I have of Him. Who is in need of mercy and grace? Backsliders, wanderers, even among us, imposters and posers pretending to be in the faith. Even their closest family members and friends, sure that they must be. Yet you yourselves know where you stand before God. And it's with Him that you'll have to answer. But there's grace and mercy for those even in that situation. Those in need of washing, in need of healing, mercy, and grace. I love that it's not just grace. They can find grace to help in time of need and they may obtain mercy. It's not just mercy that they may obtain, but it's mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. Why is this so important? Because mercy alone would simply take care of all that which we've already done. It takes care of the past, meaning mercy is that we did not receive that which we specifically deserved for our trespasses against the holy God. That's mercy. We don't get what we deserve. And that is beautiful, that we don't get all of that which we deserve, every bit of God's wrath and judgment, but also every type of uh, curse, if you will. If you look back at Deuteronomy and the list of curses for some of those trespasses against the laws, there's so much that we do not receive that we do not get. What mercy. That's beautiful. But the problem is, I, I, I know myself. And I know tomorrow, while that mercy is wonderful, it doesn't help me for today. It doesn't help me going forward. I need grace. I need favor poured upon me because I can do nothing good in and of myself. All my good works, they're dirty rags. Everything I provide, everything I do in my home, in the church, if it's not done by Christ through me, then it's worthless. It has to be Christ who's working in you, and this is the greatest of graces. In fact, all graces flow from this one source as water from the rock in the desert. All of it flows from the vine. The branches receive their nourishment and their fruit. All of reality in the Christian walk that serves God and glorifies Him stems, is produced from Christ in us. And this is our hope. Mercy and grace. And so we sing the song, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. How we need Him. How we need Him. With the realities of our heart so regularly being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, the realities that God sees every bit of it, all of it laid before Him. I'm so thankful at the end of this chapter, you find, as you find at the end of all of God's judgment, of all His wrath, at the end of it, you find grace. You find grace. The throne of grace. What is this throne? It's interesting. The throne of grace is where the ruler of all the universe sits. Why not? Why not? The throne of power. It is a throne of power, isn't it? It is a throne of great power, of omnipotence, of power that none will stand against. Why not the throne of power here? Why why are we not reading from Paul's inspired pen? Why are we not reading the throne of power? Why not the throne of judgment? Isn't that within context? 
was there not reference to judgment? And, and wouldn't it make sense for it to just, for God's word is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, gets right to the motives and the intents of your heart, divides it and looks at it, lays it before the judgment seat of God's all-seeing eye? Why not the throne of judgment? It is the throne of judgment where the goats and the sheep will be separated, the wheat from the tares. But here, the throne of grace. (laughs) Why not the throne of holiness? So we see the throne described, don't we? Where do we see that at? In the scripture. Where's the throne depicted? In Revelation? It's good when we can go there next. I'm thinking backwards. Isaiah 6. Right. So Isaiah 6, you have this throne. High. Lifted up. The throne of holiness. Why not the throne of holiness here? High and lifted up. I mean, the room filled with smoke. This this trembling, the doorposts, the door frames. Those, that's where we go when there's a tornado warning, right? You stand in the door frame because that's, that's a safe spot, right? Away from windows. And you go to a sturdy place in the house. Here are these door frames. These are door frames into the throne room of heaven. And they're shaking at just the declaration of his holiness. Thrice holy God. Again, I remind us, this is the same throne. This is the same throne. But here, it's called the throne of grace. The throne where the ruler of all things sits. He who none can stay his hand. None can tell him what doest thou. A place where, okay, let's go even further back. Isaiah 6, but even further back, there was a place where there was a throne or a mercy seat, right? And in the midst of that was was the Shekinah glory? Who could see that? Who could approach that throne? Just one. But, but not just one any time. Just one at one specific time. A day. A day of atonement. And even then, when he entered in, the room, as we understand it, was filled with incense. Just as the Isaiah 6 temple was filled with smoke, so it is that, that, that glory that mercy even at the mercy seat was clouded. And only one man could enter in on the Day of Atonement. All others were separated by this thick, immense veil. And they could not enter in. This throne. Who wants to come boldly? Who wants to come to this throne? I mean... The reality was when men of Old Testament mishandled God's glory and his holiness, they were struck dead. I'm thinking strange fire and the two priests there. I'm thinking of one who just steadied the ark and dead. That's what we deserve. That's why we need it to be a place of mercy and of grace. And this is the testimony if you mystery of the gospel, that this is not a new God, a God who had a son and and changed his disposition towards mankind. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a God who is the God yesterday, today, and forever, the same God of judgment, of power, of holiness, and he has a throne. He sits on it, rules over all things in perfect and complete control, sustaining, maintaining, ordering, and directing according to his will and purpose from the beginning of time, all things set And yet here is a throne and we are told, let us therefore come boldly unto this throne. Who wants to come boldly? Who wants to step those steps and come to that doorframe and approach that throne? Seeing it afar off would even cause us to tremble and realize just how wretched we are. Men of such low estate, why is God mindful of us? Why does He think of us? And even then, if He thought of us and sent good for us, that would be enough. But He sends not just good for us. Joseph, right, sending to Benjamin, sent him goods, sent him things, and and also sent for him to come. So our God, 
sins for us to come boldly unto the throne of grace. What is it to come boldly? You see, if we're going to come, let us understand the way God has prescribed for us to come, lest we come in the wrong way. Because this is the same throne of holiness. This is the same throne of judgment. This is the same throne of power. Let us be sure we're coming in a biblical way, not in a way that dishonors him. Let us therefore come boldly. So in no way is this with irreverence, not with pride or presumption, just thinking, well, God said I can come boldly. I'm just, I'm going to come to him however I want. That's not what boldly means. Boldly does not mean however you want. Boldly means with confidence. With confidence. You can be confident when you step before this throne. But let us beware of creating an unbiblical standard here because while I just warned us of the unbiblical standard of getting loose, if you will, or reverent with God's throne, let us be careful of not creating a standard of our own of what we deem to be reverent and holy. You see, if we're not careful, perhaps even at the dinner table, we could, we could flippantly thank you lord for this food and move on with our meal or we could end up with a 15 20 minute prayer over pizza and it's cold at the end and and yet we're all, we're not doing it out of reverence to god we're doing it because oh well we, this is how we come to god well we come to god as god tells us to come to him and the word is boldly so let's beware of creating unbiblical standards being casual or being extremely ritualistic, afraid to pray from our hearts. A pray, that's, that's what we mean when we say come to the throne. We're talking about prayer because there's no physical throne over in Jerusalem. We have, we have no journey to make. We don't need to pilgrimage over there. We're already pilgrimaging right now on our way to that great throne, to that kingdom, that city. But when we're coming boldly, when we're praying boldly, we don't want to be over casual, but we also don't want to feel the need to be bound by a prayer book of some kind. There's no binding there. You're free to speak your heart. There's, that's, that's what we mean by confidence, that prayers are candid and direct. What's our phrase? We say, oh, let me be honest with you. Okay, we should always be honest with God. We should always be honest with each other. But it's just a phrase that we use to kind of get people's mind around, hey, I'm going to say something kind of frank, direct here, and I just want to be open and share my heart with you. Sometimes that's really needed among brethren to just just open up and, and be clear one to another. And that's helpful. That's how we ought to approach God. Confident that God already knows the intents and thoughts of our hearts. And that we can open up and request directly to him. We don't need to go through some intermediary of of man types, meaning like Mary, meaning the church. There are so many ways that man tries to create some some middleman. You you know, there there are industries, right? And they're doing some work one company to another, and another company comes in, and they try to get in the middleman to benefit. Well, man does that between man and God as well. There are certain men who want to benefit, gain some pride, some level of of uh, importance, because, well, I'm the intermediary between you and God. I'm not an intermediary. Don't put me between there. Don't put put any man who stands behind this pulpit as in some way there between you and God. The only man between you and God is the God-man, Christ Jesus. And he's the only one who can stand there and do that kind of work that we need here. We can come boldly to Christ. You see, listen to these prayers. Listen, uh, Psalm 27, 7. These prayers. It's amazing. See, we are... Sometimes we pray more like this. Well, Lord, if it's your will, then I would like this, this, and that. And certainly the pattern is such, right? Not my will, but thine be done. And I want that to be a part of our prayers. But it's interesting. We don't see this overwhelming emphasis on the sovereign will of God in the midst of prayer requests, especially in the Psalms. Now, certainly, though, if you read the whole Psalms, it's there. And it's not... 
The will of God should not hinder us from making those requests. And I think that's the part of when people are praying, Lord, your will be done, that it doesn't seem to be the reason that they're making the request, and it should be. I'm making requests because God's will will be done. And I'm not afraid to make the wrong request because I know the Lord's going to shape it out and he may say yes, he may say no, he might say maybe or wait. But God, because all things are going to work together for his will, according to his purposes, I have confidence to make my requests. But some would express it as though it were a hindrance. Lord, I'm making this request, but yours might be friend, you might overrule me, so uh, just just know I'm trying to honor you by I have this request, but if this request in any way isn't consistent with the will of God, let's not make it. Let's not ask for it. But, listen, to how the psalmists reach out to God, approach the throne boldly by faith. That same faith they had in the Old Testament, only they were looking at it from the backside of the cross. Psalm 27, 7 says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. Do you pray like that? Lord, answer me. Lord, hear me. It's bold. You see, I think we pray more, Lord, if if you're willing to hear me, he already said he was willing to hear me. He already said that he has promises of grace. He already said to come unto him, all you that are weary, heavy laden, burdened, come. And so we pray, like, hear my prayer, Psalm 143. Not in spite of the realities of the will of God, but because of the realities of God's sovereign will, we pray this way. 143, verse 1, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplication. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been times that my small children, they'll, they'll, hey dad, hey dad, hey dad, hey dad. I heard you, just hold on, I heard you, just wait, be patient. Let me teach you patience, you you have to learn to wait. But that's interesting, that is where the fatherly picture of of God's, uh, in the way that God is our father, it falls short. Because as a father, we would say, you need to wait, stop asking. God says the opposite. God says, don't wait, keep asking. Hey, Father, hey, Father, hey, Father, I have this request again. Lord, I have this request again. God, hear my prayer, oh Lord, give ear to my supplication. Please listen, answer me, hear me. In thy faithfulness, answer me. I'm going to call on your your attributes as reason to say again, answer me. Don't ignore me. And in thy righteousness, and enter not into judgment with thy servant. And don't get mad. Or tell God not to enter into judgment with us? He's, this is the throne of judgment. And we have boldness to say, don't enter into judgment with me, God. We just have to have a biblical understanding. We don't want to get an unbiblical standard of what it means to come boldly. There's a boldness where we can enter in with God, and he has given us this means, and told us to do it, and given us... a multitude of examples on how to approach. Look at Jeremiah's prayers. Look at the other Psalms. Hear me. Listen to my cry. Pay attention to me. Focus on us. Look over here. Will you, will you withhold? Why do you tarry? You tarry, but you don't tarry <laughs> over in one of the minor prophets. I can't remember which one, maybe Malachi. <sighs> Candid and direct. By no means am I suggesting irreverence. By all means, go with fear and trembling before this throne. But go trembling and fearful and let that trembling fearfulness give you boldness. With sincerity and openness. That's what it means to be bold. Too many of our prayers have this scripted nature. Where I want us praying. from One prayer, perfect example this morning, not to lift the brother up, but God's through his prayers, as he's opening his heart to God, the Spirit of God moving, you hear these prayers that are full of Scripture. And when you hear those prayers, that is not wrong. That's beautiful. But let us be aware, especially in the later hours, of getting scripted, of just following this this. You see, because I think church history has given us plenty of, of example of the dangers 
of getting scripted. Now, I, for one, have a few prayer books that I enjoy referencing. A Puritan prayer book, some old prayer books, and you read them, and it's it's beautiful to see the, the prayers of the saints and how they laid their heart open before God and relied on Him, depended on Him, trusted Him, came boldly to Him. But we have to be on guard of not getting a script before us, thinking that somehow God's pleased with a script. Our script have become present-day sacrifices where God would rather have obedience as opposed to just, here, I'm going to lay before you that which I know is good and I'm supposed to do. Let us have a sincerity and an openness. Praying Scripture should stem from the heart, not the mind. When we're praying, we don't... We should not be so concerned that to God, we express to him everything perfectly theologically correct. Now, I want our theology and our doctrine to be right. But I don't want us sitting there. The Lord knows his doctrine. The Lord knows how he's ordained things. And what's interesting is we don't sit there when our small children are talking to us. I don't know. Maybe you do. I'm not in your home. But do we really sit there and correct them on every grammatical error? I mean, we might catch them on some big ones that sound really bad. But I mean, every little grammatical error, no, no, you, it's, 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 it's them, not they, and it's our, not we, and whatever it is. Uh, oh, you need, to, you need to parse that verb correctly, and you need to make sure you, you use the right noun. No, usually we go, we know what they meant. And what's interesting, it's not only in the structure of their sentences, but it's even in how they talk. I mean, there, there are times where their, their words are slurred, or they, they use... Wording where really only because of inflection do the parents know what they're actually asking for. And God, I mean, do we know what we're asking for when we come in prayer all the time? No, most of the time, no. We don't know what we're doing, yet we're told that the Spirit helps our infirmities and our weaknesses. He helps us to pray as we ought to pray. The Spirit of God, i got to read that, Romans 8. Likewise, verse 26, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. God's will is going to be done. Make your request known, man. God's will is taken care of by God. You don't need to try and and make sure that what you're asking is in God's will. You don't know God's will, and which would ultimately lead to either one logical conclusion or another. Either you just don't need to be asking for anything, or you need to not be so concerned about if your prayer is in the will of God. Well, it can't be the first, because the Scripture tells us to bring these things to God, to pray to God. This is one of the main reasons that we're to come boldly, because... God told us to. God directs us to pray. See, this is, this is the direction. Let us therefore come boldly with simple childlike faith, without reservation, recognizing that if upon Christ, as it says in 1 John 2, 2, the sins of the whole world were laid upon him, then he can handle whatever you give him. He can handle whatever you put towards him. However small, we know that God cares about the small details if a a sparrow that's worth like on sale half a penny then is valuable to god is god is aware of it and and understands it and knows what's going on any of the smallest things we can lay before him what thorn a thorn in your flesh right like paul a thorn a little thing whatever it is that pricks you you can lay that before god what weight hinders you and keeps you from running your weight race well Whatever it is, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Without reservation. Without reservation and with persistence, constantly. So meaning both any time and all the time. Any time and all the time. Not just the really big things that are burdening you. Everything, always, laying it before God. Luke 11, chapter 5, I mean verse 5. Luke 11, verse 5. We have a parable. 
This is how we should pray. Between this parable and another, it reshaped the way I viewed prayer. I never understood the importance of going and going and going. And I use things. The Lord's will is going to be done. I asked him once. He knows all things. Why keep going? And the reason is because prayer is not meant to change God's mind or to shape the way he thinks. Prayer is not some superpower where we shape the future. Prayer is that means by which God's people enter in to fellowship with God and receive the benefit of that fellowship and the understanding of his character more. Prayer is where we get to know God and to see him more. And if we're praying over every little detail, we get to understand him in every little detail. You see, if I want to really get to know you, if I kind of want to know you, I might have lunch with you here. But if I really want to get to know you, then I probably need to come have lunch at your house. I'm okay with that too. And and anytime I I really want to get to know someone, I, I want to come regularly. I want to be at your door. I want to try and spend weekly visits with you. I want to I want to really I want to sit on your couch with you and see how you interact with your spouse and your children and your siblings and your neighbor. I want to get to know you. Well, see, if Christ is one whom we want to know, who we want to see more of, who we want to understand better, if we are in need of grace and in need of mercy, then he is one that we want to spend much time with, bringing every little detail before him. That's what prayer does. So which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. So hospitality was important in the context of the Jews. So important that it meant instead of being a good neighbor tonight, I would rather be hospitable. So we make decisions like that, right? Well, okay, I've got this commitment, I've got this commitment. And we decide based on a, the best way to glorify God, how we might keep both of those commitments. And he's decided, okay, I'm going to keep the commitment under this friend of mine who's just passing on the the kindness here by coming so late to the first friend. You got three people, right? The first friend came in so late. The second friend, it seems he was unaware, or perhaps he would have prepared bread already. Instead, he goes and he asks for loaves from his friend in the middle of the night. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door's now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, and it was just a bad time, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. It was a bad time, and he's persistent in it. Are our prayers persistent? You see, here's the good thing. This friend may have been sleeping, but we have a God who never sleeps nor slumbers, who's always attentive to his children, who's working all things for their good, and is actively aware. So, go to him for three slices of bread. That's it's not just full loaves. Three slices of bread is what it seems to imply. Something small. Something seemingly weightless in respect to waking me up at midnight. It just doesn't seem to have any value. So that's how we feel about our prayers, isn't it? Well, Lord, you're busy ruling the universe. Lord, you're busy orchestrating all things for the goods of the saints and working out your redemptive plan of history. You don't have time for my requests. That's a, that's a bother you at midnight type of request. It's just not good to do it, is our mindset as, as people. But that's not what we're told here. The, the lesson is, Christ says unto us, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son, here's another parable, if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? 
If you then being evil, I like this because Christ doesn't even take a breath here nor try to explain the realities that we are just evil. He takes it for granted. It is a from heaven sent doctrine that God knows we are evil. We should adopt that the same way. We shouldn't try to take great pains to explain why man is evil, especially in our efforts to explain our faith to others as we're trying to share the grace of God with others. We don't need to focus on depravity. Let's focus on the man who solved all that, Christ Jesus. We don't need to, to go through laps and laps about, oh, well, we are depraved. Look at Romans 3. Look at the Old Testament. Look, We don't need to do that. The fact is, maybe even take them here. Christ said we're evil. That's the end of it. Christ said we're evil. Yet, even being evil, we know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more than, see, we are evil and God is infinitely gracious and good. With confidence, we can enter in. To be certain, to be certain of an answer. I mentioned earlier how sometimes we pray for grace, pray for faith, pray for help. And the Lord sends us trials and difficulties. He removes a hedge or he allows some calamity and he controls all of it. But we can be certain whatever he sends is for our good. Whatever cup we're ordained to drink from providentially will be for our benefit and for our eternal good, I should say. Whatever you're facing right now, whatever ailments, whatever difficulties in your life, whatever losses and pains and struggles, all of it, let that never Never cause you to waver when you go to ask God for help. Let not the fact that things get hard and things are hard stop you from asking the Lord even to be relieved of it. And if not relieved of it, to be helped through it. But let it never stop us from going to him. And even so, not just stop us, but don't even let it cause you to waver. We cannot waver. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Nothing wavering. Be sure. That is boldness. When you go to God, be sure of who he is. Be sure of who he is, of what he can do. Believe that you receive them and ye shall have them. Or... Everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. That's the truth. Therefore, going back, go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly. The question has been lingering perhaps, as I mentioned it earlier, why can we come boldly to the throne? I'm telling you, come boldly. I'm telling you how, what boldness really is. I'm saying, do this, do this. And I'm not giving you any reasons why. I, in fact, actually, I can't help myself. I start to, right? I start to tell you because, because the reasons are the most beautiful part. The reasons are the part of this exhortation that make us look at Christ. The reasons are the part of this exhortation that cause us to change our glance from what I'm doing, how I'm praying, how I'm living, and cause us to turn our gaze heavenward and look upon that precious Savior. Therefore. You see that therefore is therefore a reason, and we're going to look back, and we're going to see why. It's verses 14 and 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. That's the reason. Since you have a great high priest, therefore, come boldly under the throne. A great high priest, what does that mean? Meaning, now, there was once one man who entered on one day into the Holy of Holies through the veil. Now you have one man who sacrificed himself, and that curtain, that veil, was rent from top to bottom. And now we enter in. With him as our mediator, as our high priest, as our representative, and not just representative, but advocate. We have an advocate. If any of you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. We can come boldly. <laughs> Look, we can do nothing without Christ. Oh, what a reshaping of our prayers. Every time we pray, we're not just laying forth our efforts. We're not just opening our mouth and making our words come forward. We are seeking the Lord first. We are looking to Christ. 
We can come boldly, but not without Christ. We can approach the throne of grace, but not without our high priest that is passed into the heavens and sits on that throne. Come boldly. For we have, in verse 15, not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. This is a great comfort. I don't believe it's the main point of this verse, but I believe it is a point of this verse, that Christ faced temptation. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're thinking and feeling, not just because he can see it all, because all things are open unto him, with which whom we have to do. It's not just that. It's, it's because God has in the flesh experienced the same trials, the same temptations. Let me add this layer. Not just experienced trials and temptations, but he experienced them to a greater degree than any of us ever will. Why? Well, because when the, Christ talks about the world hating us, he says, the world first hated me. The greater hate is for Christ and then his people. And I'll tell you, who's the, the prince of the power of the air of this world? Who's running all of this? It's Satan himself. And yes, he hates people who profess and confess the name of Christ Jesus and proclaim the glories of his grace and mercy to save sinners. He hates that, but he hates the man who did it more. And so he was coming at him with everything he had. But let me add this as well. Not just was Satan more hateful towards Christ than he is of us. Christ resisted at every point. See, that's what it says at the end. Yet without sin. Now, there are many of us who have not even yet resisted under bloodshed. Christ resisted both under bloodshed and to the success with every temptation and trial. You see, we would be tried even harder we will be tried even harder as we grow in grace. As we stand firm in grace and as we grow in truth, we will overcome. In fact, if you're not overcoming, if you're not having success in your Christian walk, test yourself. Are you in the faith? Because Christ overcame. And would his people not also follow the same path that he trod on? But you see, we do falter. We do fail. We do stumble in this path. And so, the reality is Christ never did. And as he did, if you will, it was like levels in a video game. They seem to get harder near the end of the game, right? I would, I would suggest, based on when you look at the temptations of Christ, that the, these were growing in intensity. <laughs> Yet, in his perfections, being perfectly pure within, even when shaken on the outside, tried and, and, uh, accosted, if you will, he still from within came forth purity and godliness. He was without sin. See, that's the point of this verse, that Christ is without sin. You see, in the book of Hebrews, it was just that in verse 18 of chapter 2, that the writer had already encouraged the saints to look to Christ as one that could sympathize with them. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is also able to succor them that are tempted. He's able to give you comfort in an empathetic way, in a sympathetic way, both. But here, that's although that is a point here, he's touching on that same reality back there at the end of chapter 2. He's saying, but my main point is that he was without sin. You see, who can approach the throne? Only those without sin. Who could enter into the Holy of Holies? Only those who had the blood. That was a taunt. See, Christ entered in on our behalf, succeeded, and so with confidence, therefore, because of his perfection, he had no guile. He was the lamb without spot and blemish. Because of that, we look to that perfect sacrifice and his precious blood and say, I can come boldly to the mercy seat because that mercy seat just as the tabernacle is sprinkled with blood, the blood of Christ. He's without sin. And so therefore now we are clothed in that same righteousness. We look to Christ. We've heard his call. We have pressed forward in this walk and we look to Christ considering all that he did as a high priest, as an apostle, a messenger, 
of gospel truth. He's now our peace. He's now our peace before that throne. The judgment, the holiness, the power, all of that was poured upon Christ. All of it, in a condensed fashion, was just slammed upon the helpless in the sense that he subjected himself. The helpless Lamb of God. Meaning, I'm trying to draw this comparison to an all-powerful God and a Christ completely submitted, receiving all of it without even speaking a word. A word in contrary to receiving it. And he deserved none of it. We deserved all of it. We deserved what was to come flowing from this throne of power. We did not deserve the golden scepter to be extended to us. We deserved the gallows. And yet Christ himself went there for us. He is now our peace, according to Ephesians 2.13. Because he redeemed us, he made that peace. Peace that extends between brother and brother, man and man. But a peace that was first made between man and God. That's why we can come boldly. Because he's without sin and he made peace. He made peace, but then he didn't just make peace. So we're not just, we're not just on a neutral level now where he made peace, but rather he gave relationship with God. God is our Father. Now we pray, we say, we pray, our Father who art in heaven. Just think on that. Just think on that. Our Father, a personal, loving relationship. As far as fathers are defined in the scripture. That's how we want to understand fatherhood as it's defined in the scripture. Worldly examples are helpful, but let's define it via the scripture. And we see a loving father, one who guides, protects, provides, serves, loves, sacrifices. A father, our father. We can call him our father because of the blood of Christ, because of the sacrifice there. Our father who art in heaven, a, a personal relationship, a personal God, yet one in heaven, an infinite God. Only the true and living God is both personal and infinite simultaneously, and we receive the benefit of both. We can come boldly to a father and say, Lord, these are my requests. We can come boldly to the ruler and king of all the universe and say, Lord, these are my requests. We receive the benefit of who God is. We deserve none of it. We're commanded to do so, to come boldly, and so therefore we ought to. We come not to the law. It's in Hebrews 12. Because this idea of coming to Christ coming to Christ, come to him, go to him, draw nigh to him, seek after him. Hebrews is full of it. Oh, it's one of the beautiful themes of the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews 12, 18, it says, you're not come under the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest. You say, well, but wait, you said it was all that. You said it was the, the throne of holiness. It is, but you're not coming to that. You're coming to the throne of grace. You see, what I mean is, you're not coming, how we come is a lot like uh, how you got here today to church. You came in a vehicle, right? And there's two ways to get to the throne. You can either come by the law, your own good works, your own ability, your own um, obedience, or you can come by the perfect obedience of Christ. These are the only two ways to come. There's only two methods of transportation. But how you come determines what you will receive. You see, we are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. We're coming to the throne of grace. Not by the law, by mercy and grace, to receive mercy and grace. We come by it, we, we leave with it, we use it, we walk by it, we live by it, we'll enter the kingdom by it, grace and mercy. Hebrews seven twenty five. 
the last reason why we can come. Because he's able. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. See, the vehicle is important. How you come to God is important. Come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. With confidence. We can come boldly. Because this is he who's able to save to the uttermost. This is he who has grace abounding. Grace that we cannot even begin to fathom. Let us make our petitions known to him. So, did we answer all the questions? What is this throne? What is it to come boldly? Why can we come boldly? I want to just look at one last part as I close this. Let us, let us, therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is an imperative. It's a direction. But I love how it's phrased. See, that's one thing about giving direction, giving command. There's a way to say it. We can say it in a way that, that shows this, this love and compassion and, and sympathy, patience and kindness. Let us, therefore, come boldly. Let us. Us. Who's us? Who's us? Us is first and foremost I, right? For each of us, it is I. I need the throne of grace. Who's in need of mercy and grace? Have we all seen ourselves in desperate need of kneeling at this throne and receiving mercy and grace and help in time of need, which is always? It's not just us, though. It's also the writer, convinced it's Paul. It's the writer saying, Yes, I'm divinely inspired, but I also need this throne of grace. Whatever gifts, whatever talents, whatever skills, whatever good you are to the church, it's okay. It's fine. But come to the throne of grace. That's the only way you can continue that work. It's the only way you can be a help to the church is to be at the throne of grace. Let us. Think of Paul. Okay, in, in Acts chapter 9, he preached boldly, he spoke boldly. But I suggest that before he was able to preach boldly, before he was able to speak boldly, or if you will, to live a bold Christian life, before he was able to do that, he prayed boldly. Because if you look back and they were talking about Paul and the first evidence of his conversion that God had sovereignly saved him, they said, behold, he prayeth. (laughs) He was bold first in prayer. If you want to be any good in the kingdom, of any use, of any profit to the saints, to those you love and care about around you, first, pray boldly before you seek to be bold in any other way, doctrine and and service and instruction. Be bold first in prayer. Let us, let us the whole church, because this has been a place in trials and hardships. This throne that we can boldly approach has been a place of comfort and of help and of healing. Let us, I believe, if we look at that, let us is the Holy Spirit himself, as we read over in Romans. The Holy Spirit himself saying, let us, Christ himself interceding, let us, let us all go to the throne of grace. They have no need. Why are they there? They are there because of God out of love and in their, in their triune decision making determined that they would be there for us. The Holy Spirit interceding on our behalf, Christ making intercession for us. Your prayers are mingled with those prayers. That's why they're effective. Let us come boldly to this throne of grace. We need this grace. Do not think that you have arrived at a Christian position where you do not need this grace. Beg for it. Plead for it. Go constantly, consistently, come boldly, come boldly with confidence. Ask the Lord. He is able to give us grace to help us in this pilgrimage. Lay aside every weight. Come boldly to the throne of grace.
Oh, Lord, will you help us come boldly to you? Will you help us think right? Will you shape our mind, renew it, Lord? Give us right thinking. And when we look to your throne, we don't get tossed to and fro by different ideas of how to pray and how to approach you, Lord. Would you help us to come biblically? Would you help us to come boldly? Would you give us help? Would you give us grace and mercy? We're unfit, we're unworthy to ask you of that, Lord. But just looking to your truth here for a moment, we've already tasted of it and we would have more. We'd hunger and thirst after righteousness, Lord, and we know that we can do no good on our own. Would you fill us and would you live in us? Would you abide in us and we in you, Lord, that we might be fruitful and effective for your kingdom, Lord, that we would glorify your name in this earth, Lord. Oh, Lord, that your glory would be proclaimed from the highest mountains and in the lowest valleys. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.